you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com and use the code NERDIST. That makes a lot of sense. Now entering Nerdist.com. That's it. We're recording. All right. Okay. <clears throat> awesome. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. We're <laughs> sure. we're on. This is it. There's no there's no real official. We're on. There's no real official signal to the beginning of the show. So. No. These, these days, there's no official anything. I'm gonna go into airplane mode. Not like I get any service in here. <clears throat> but uh, um, this is a pretty amazing screening room that we're in. Do yeah. You, do you get? Do you have actual prints of movies that you watch in here? No. Oh my gosh. When I bought this house um there was a really expensive uh <laughs> like a projector or whatever whatever movie star was living here felt the need for a very expensive one i did not it was offered to me with the house i think it was like a, another million dollars which i <laughs> promptly turned down and bought something at radio check yeah i'll just uh we have digital <clears throat> technology yeah now, so i I'll mean just it was something. not even uh under consideration yeah, I use this much less frequently than I should, but uh, it's always on my uh, to-do list for New Year's Eve resolutions to use the screening room more. Oh, the problems I have, Chris. <laughs> the problems I have. I always loved. I always loved to like talk about luxury problems with friends. Like, I literally, yeah. I don't have enough pockets to put all this money in them. I don't know what. <laughs> hey, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I earned every penny of it. <laughs> I came up the hard way. <laughs> I was born on the mean streets. So All right, not the mean streets, but the circular driveways. The, and and uh, when you were while, uh, well, I while, was very poor. I had very poor years. I mean, I literally lived in slums for ten years. Was, so there, people. While you were doing stand up, well, um, <clears throat> college. I would consider. I consider living where I lived in college town, as they called it. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the dorm first year at Cornell was. Um, housing that was built in 1945 that was temporary it was still there 35 years later <laughs> um that was sort of a slum and then yeah uh yes then when i moved to new york starting stand-up those were definitely slums spanish harlem uh, hell's kitchen um so there was no screening room in hell's there kitchen was you're no saying? screening room no okay. there was plenty of roaches <laughs> <laughs> there was a screaming room where people would just beat yeah. the shit out of you for no reason. Oh, yeah. There was very often like a bum passed out in the, I call it the foyer. <laughs> you know, that that little very tiny space where you walked in the door and got your mail at those metal that, boxes. That, I think that's technically the room that's easier to get robbed in. Right. I, you know, I was never a defender of New York. <laughs> Let me put it that way. When did you, uh, when did you start? I mean, because I, I, I mean, I know you're stand up. I've known your stand-up since forever, but I don't know exactly when you started. I started in the year of our Lord, 1979, uh, fresh out of Cornell, just at the beginning, or maybe as the wave was building almost to a crest of the comedy boom. Mm -hmm. 
um, an era limbed, I think, <laughs> rather amusingly in my novel, True Story, available from, oh God, it was so long ago. Who did put that out? Simon and Schuster? I don't know. Look it up on the internet. Well, they're still around. Fortunately, they're still around. They haven't but been gobbled yes, up I, yet. I wrote one novel in my life because, you know, they say write what you know about mm -hmm. and, you know, I think it's always uh, the case that novelists rewrite the same novel basically over and over again. There's a few, I guess, who, who have defied that, but a lot of them do that. So I would never write another one. But I did write one about that period in my life, the, my first year in comedy. I thought that was the, you know, the pivotal moment in your life. Right. You know, it's sort of that moment in the experiment when you're going to go on to either make a new compound or not make anything. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, a trial. So. so what was it? Uh, what was it about? I mean, I always just assume like, well, if you're going to do stand up, it's just some genetic thing that you have a predisposition to it, and, and you have to do it. And <clears throat> you know, no matter no matter how disconcerting it can be, and how many you know two people audiences you perform for, there's something in you that forces you to get up and keep doing it. Absolutely. I, I mean, that's one of the themes of that uh, novel in the beginning is that the character you know it's it's a novelization but that part was certainly me feels um frustrated that he is um that he was born to do it i knew i wanted to do it when i was a little kid but now the field was crowded with so many idiots and amateurs uh, you know dentists were like moonlighting trying to be comics right, right, right. You know, there was an explosion of it and i i seem to remember likening it to the beginning of a marathon where the real runners had to put up with the, oh, yeah. you know, I'm talking about the city marathons, not the Olympics, but, right. you know, where, like, there's thousands of boneheads who are not going to run the full 26 miles, <laughs> right. but who are going to clog up the first few miles. And that's what I felt like at the beginning of uh, of my comedy life. It was a snobby way to look at it, but turned out I was right. Right. Well, <laughs> turned yeah. out I was right. I mean, I I've run the, the full 26 <laughs> miles, and there were a, a lot couple of, times. And a there were times. a lot of dentists clogging well, the way. Well, yeah, you know, I feel like, I feel like I've had this conversation with, uh, with comics in LA before where they'll go like, eh, these fucking actors, you know, they think stand-ups is so easy and they'll try it. And I'm like, let them, because they're not going to keep doing it because it is not rewarding for I mean, like it's only as rewarding as <clears throat> that's true. I got up again and did it, and I need you know, but not in the sense it's, of right. It, it was semi. It, at first, it was just miserable and horrible. Of course, just the worst sort of thing in the world. Then after you you know you can at least get laughs for twenty minutes. It becomes, for me anyway, you know, sometimes uh, elating and wonderful, and a lot of times frustrating, and then. And then for many years, it's, it's you know, you can at least make a living, but it can be a real grind. I mean, when you're working, you know, I remember those gigs, you know, where you'd work four or five days in a town. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd be in Columbia, South Carolina for like, you know, Wednesday through Sunday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, I'm, I'm doing that, that now. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, <laughs> oh, sorry. <I> <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. It's, I mean, that, that, that was uh, difficult. But, uh, you know, and then finally, if you stick with it, uh, at least in my case, I've found like the last 10 years have been just pure joy. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, but it takes a, that that's a long time. I mean, that's 20 years before it got to be pure joy. And that's, and the only way that you can maintain that for 20 years is if you, if you're weirdly obsessive about it and you have, you have to do it. Right. Cause at least now, if you're in like Columbia, South Carolina, every town has some sort of a hive that is the, you know, the franchise mini mall. But I imagine in like 1970 or 80, you know, eh, there's not a Borders and a Starbucks and a fucking, you know, uh, whatever the uh, Applebee's or whatever. So what, what do you do? What do you do in those towns at, the, at that point? You read the paper, you know, I mean, <clears throat> Jay, I seem to remember having a routine about that, you know, about, I seem to remember him on Letterman, like in the early 80s, or maybe it was in his act, probably both. He had a routine about, yeah, you're on the road, uh, you know, you're one of those uh, motels with the cars, you open the door, you know, here right outside your door, and, uh, you know, you have time to kill, you read the whole paper. <laughs> You know, you're there like, oh, look at that. Uh, tuna casserole with a graham cracker crust. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, Jay was funny. Jay is funny. Jay was always, like, had the best pure, like, act, act. Yeah. You know, in those days. 
I think I think I feel like that's one of the reasons why he, I mean he doesn't I mean, you know like when you really look at the big picture he doesn't get a lot of shit because the majority of America doesn't care about that stuff. But I feel like I feel he's gotten a lot of shit lately. He does get a lot of shit lately and I feel like it's <clears> you know there's a lot of comics there's a lot of people who you know when he was doing comedy in the 70s and 80s was like oh my god like he was so fucking fast and sharp and just Jay still is. Insane. He just is he just is doing I mean, I still think his monologue is um, the best one uh, at that hour. And I also think that uh, during the writer's strike, I was amazed that he went on... (laughs) It seemed like there was no uh, interruption at all. I mean, he single-handedly wrote the entire monologue... I Every just, night, which... I, I, I think I think somehow his his uh, his heart is governed by the plot of speed, and if he slows down under fifty five miles an hour, oh, he yeah. will die. Yeah, Jay's a Jay's a workaholic. I mean, he I remember way a million years ago, back in the day, him saying, uh, bragging. I remember standing at the Improv with a few comics, and he was bragging that he had an agent who would get him a job every day he wanted to work, which was of course every day. Right. He didn't care about routing. You know, be like, yeah, I'm in uh, Puerto Rico, and then I'm in Portland, uh, Oregon, and then I'm, I'm I'm back to Portland, Maine, and uh, then I go to Phoenix. You know, it was terrible. He didn't care. He just wanted to get up and tell jokes every night. Did you have that, or was it for you? I mean, God no. What was your? You know, when you're starting <laughs> Still comedy, don't. when you when you're starting comedy in '79 or '80, is there is there a is there a big picture goal, or is it just I feel like I need to perform? And I'm well, there was when it, but it changed. I mean, before I started i wanted to be johnny carson when i was a kid then when i started doing it and hung around at the clubs and talked with the other comics and i guess it was also what was going on in the era at the time the goal was to you know there was an absolute template i remember talking about it with jerry seinfeld and paul reiser and but you know we all agreed you get you know you 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 stay here in new york building up at least six Clean tonight show <laughs> TV shots, friendly like, minutes. absolutely. So that when you get when you get the call, you have you know you can you don't want to like do one or two and then oh here's a great new comedian oh and now you're out of material right good clean stuff you know which I had trouble with because I wasn't interested in like <laughs> trivial shit um, and then you get a sitcom and that kind of worked out for me. I mean <laughs> I went out to I mean I did. I was only doing it like three and a half years when I was on The Tonight Show. I did three quick shots, um, moved out to California. Um, I did get a, you know, I got a movie right away. Then I did get a sitcom and then, another, you know, I was on that path. Um, so for, for most of the 80s, my goal had shifted from being Johnny Carson to then being um, an actor. Because I was making my living a lot, you know, most of my big paychecks, <laughs> big, well, well, you know, enough to live on, came from, you know, well, sitcom money was amazing compared to what we were making at, you know, the comedy hut. Right. Um, but, you know, I, that at the, by the end of the decade, I, I was not, I had done a few of them, it was not interesting anymore. And then I was at a period like around the beginning of the 90s where I was really lost because I didn't want to do that and I didn't have anything new starting and I didn't didn't know really if I was going to be one of the people who was like left on the side of the road I thought oh gosh huh? I'm one of those people in the marathon <laughs> somebody else is running over me uh, did Bill Maher end up being one of those people left on the side of the road did he ever work again We'll find out in 30 seconds, right after we pause to make some money so I can buy Matt and Jonah a sandwich, even though they were not on this episode. Which, by the way, is brought to you by Squarespace.com. It is the fast and easy way to create and manage a high-quality website and or blog. Whether you're a beginner or an expert, Squarespace.com has what you need. A photo gallery, you got form builders, Google Maps, permission access handling, and more. There are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of the designs. Use Squarespace for all of your website needs. Build it, host it, and manage it. 
For a free trial, go to squarespace.com. There is no credit card needed. Just in case you were wondering, you try it out and you build your website. Then if you decide to purchase it, get 10% off when you enter the offer code NERDIST. How did they come up with that? That is all. When we left off, Bill was worried he might never work again. What happened next? And then, uh, luckily, I was able to pitch uh, um, Politically Incorrect in 92. And then, I mean, that's what I really should have always been doing. I wasn't old enough to do it, but that was, you know, that was kind of a Johnny Carson thing, but to me better, because it was Johnny Carson talking about something instead of interviewing, you know, the third lead on bringing up Chunky, which, if I had to do that, I'd blow my brains out. Well, yeah, and when you look back, that sort of, that format, I mean, even though it still exists today, I mean, it's, it's a relatively antiquated format as far as television is concerned, where you go on and pretend you know so it's one of the reasons why i love ferguson so much (laughs) like he just talks to you he just he just chats with you like a human being right and um you know there's so much of the what was it like working on this thing it was fantastic terrific rimshot commercial yeah the old um johnny used to say it all the time and i guess they still do but Somebody told somebody told me. Yeah, some the booking producer told you. What do you mean the, per, the person who did the pre-interview? You know, we never really saw through that. I heard. Where did you, know, you hear? There's no internet know. yet. Where did you hear yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but John, that was Johnny's big one. You know, so, somebody told me that you uh, collect toy trains. <laughs> what was he like off the? Like, did you? Was, was he a guy you could hang out with off stage? I or was never he hung just... out with him off. I mean, I, I mean, I never hung out with outside of the building. But I saw him sometimes. Um, before the show, you know, just briefly, like I was standing in the wings and he was coming down. I remember once standing back there when Ed was doing his warm up and Johnny was like, "God, this can't this guy get some new material?" Oh, I, mean, I have been listening to the same old crap for a ton and how many? Years? You know, he was he was you know being sort of winky funny about it but there was also some lot of literal frustration like jesus christ could this guy get a new joke for the warm up um and uh but he was you know that's as far as i ever uh, and sometimes uh right after the show you know i was leaving while he was leaving we'd we'd like be walking out to the parking lot together i mean but that was the extent of it but he was always gracious in every moment those moments or the ones um, on the air, um, I remember once I was walking out. This is near the end, maybe the last time I did it, when Jay was um, tapped to be the successor, mm-hmm. and he got it. Johnny got in his car, some sports car, and it wouldn't start. And and people were sort of like gathering around, and he <laughs> and I said to him, "Boy, Jay Leno, you know, he's a car nut. I bet you he he he'd know how to start the car." And Johnny looked up and he went, well, you know, we're going to see how much he knows about television. Oh, shit. Damn. <laughs> now, there's a guy that I always wanted to just meet or, or you know, or do the show. I mean, I was too, you know, I was too kind of, I was old enough to do it, but I wasn't doing anything that would have gotten me on the show. Yeah. Because there just isn't really a, I mean, I'm trying to think of who is... I mean, he, there are super famous people on television, but he was the fucking juggernaut. Like, if you were on his show, it changed your life. That's not true. You don't think so? Didn't change mine. I was on 30 times with Johnny. Um, that's a myth that, I don't know where that started, probably with Johnny, publicity people. <laughs> I mean, there was a time way, way back, way before my time, maybe when I was a kid, when if you did The Tonight Show, uh, a comedian was such a rare thing that it was sort of an event, but by the time I was doing it in the 80s, there was, there was a new comedian every week. It didn't make, all it did was make you viable in within show business to get some other job. You know, if you had done a few tonight shows, like I got the part in DC Cab because the guy saw me on the, the director, Joel Schumacher, who I still love. I just read something about him. He's got a new picture out. He, he, he saw me on The Tonight Show. Um, or, you know, casting people would watch it. Mm-hmm. But it didn't make you famous. Well, that makes me feel and better. And it didn't make you a star, certainly. I think the last person who was who became, like, a star um, just from doing stand-up and appearances like that was maybe David Brenner. 
Mm-hmm. And he started in the late sixties. Actually, now that I think about it, in in uh, Steve Martin's book *Born Standing Up*, he said, "Like, oh yeah, I did uh, I did the Tonight Show like fifteen times before anyone had any idea." Absolutely, yeah. I think I got that. I, I think because I had Drew Carey on a few months ago, and he was like, "I went on the show on a Friday, and on a Monday, my life was changed." Like he said, he because had he maybe because he got a sitcom. Okay. You know, I mean, that happened. I mean, there was that era also, which maybe is still going on to a degree, when comedians would would uh, do their act and then somebody would create, maybe them with somebody, a sitcom based on what their act was. Mm-hmm. Ray Romano, yeah. Roseanne, you know, that was the kind of Jack Gary Shandling. That was sort of the template for a while, was we build a sitcom around what your act is. So in that sense, it could change your life, but it didn't change your life like... You know, you did the Tonight Show on Friday, and then Monday, everybody was like, "Boy, oh, there he is! There's the guy." We all come on, right? That is interesting, though, because in the in the late '90s, after you know, after the wave of comedians getting sitcoms, the networks were handing out deals to anyone with five minutes, like sure. anyone with five minutes right. of material, and then right. Oh, but you only have five minutes. So then, what? You know, so all these people are moving out to L.A. and just doing just doing their five minute set, and right. uh, and then of course. Well, we don't really have an act, so what do what right. do you build around that? Does not this that does not happen anymore? By the way, that's yeah. over. I mean, Roseanne was probably or Ray Romano. That was probably the most successful ones. They had acts that really lent themselves to a sitcom. You know, I'm the put upon housewife, or I'm the put upon husband, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. Would you be happy doing a sitcom now, or is that? <laughs> oh my God, no! Are you serious? <laughs> I was happy doing it. Uh, you know, when I first got one, it was thrilling. I was twenty-eight, I yeah. think. I was doing a part they wrote for someone who was forty, but I just was funnier than the other people in the auditions. I was really a good auditioner, especially if it was a comedy part where you could like help out with the writing. I mean, that was a. I remember the first day I overheard this actress who was playing like the secretary and she was like in her 50s or I don't know, maybe she was 35, but to me she seemed like she was in her 50s at the time. And I remember overhearing her say, they've hired a comedian. Oh, like it's a bad thing? (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, Irish and comedians need not apply, you know, like, yeah, like they've hired a, like, oh, there's going to be havoc on the set. Uh, Robin Williams was another one who had an act, and then they made it into Mork. Right. You know, um, so, yeah, that's what we all wanted to do. Was I think Robin Williams was more than anyone else, because that show went on, I think, in 78 or 79. That, more than anyone else, made us comics in that era think of that idea of, oh, okay, go out to the West Coast with your material and get a sitcom, you yeah. know, after you do the Tonight Show four times. Right, right, right. Did you, uh, when did you kind of make the, because I, I remember your stand-up from the 80s, and I remember that it, I remember one joke in particular about, uh, he was like a, a New York cop at the Crucifixion. Yes, that was a was joke like, I used to open my act with. Right, show's over. That's, show's over. Yeah. And so I feel like there was, I, I remember, I remember when I look back now, I remember like, yeah, there were definitely some jabs at politics and religion and that sort of thing, but it wasn't. Right. No, it wasn't. You, your act. No. I don't remember as being overly, you know, political in any way. So it how was, did that transition was, happen? It was political, but it was less so, and it was probably less sophisticated because I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was. It was never about. Um, even though I tried, <laughs> because you know you wanted those, you know, six clean Tonight <laughs> shows all ready to go. I tried manfully to create material based. You know, like Jerry Seinfeld's act. I mean, Jerry is brilliant at making nothing interesting or making trivial things mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, I have always loved his act and to this day do love his act. And uh, I think over the years, actually, it's gotten a little... Now that he's married, I think it's gotten a little more um, substantial. But, you know, it used to be famous for being about the socks and the dryer and those right. kind of bits. Um and I think we all wanted to do that because that was the easiest to get on TV, you know. But it was just never what really interested me. I was interested in weightier subjects, but I wasn't old enough to treat them properly, mm-hmm. I think is the best way to put it. So, you know, I kind of grew into the kind of material I should always have been doing. Well, I don't think the 80s could have... I don't, I don't remember the 80s comedy as being that tolerant of weightier stuff. It, it, it's, it seemed... All the stuff that I remember seeing on television, like, none of it was really... 
none of it was really like challenging in the sense of uh, you know like making any grand statements. A lot of it was just sort of fun and you know and silly and like goofy. the era itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's yeah. exactly. So, how does the idea for politically correct and uh, correct come along? Like, what do you? Why do you? Why do you decide to pitch? You know, that I show? had that idea for a long time to do. I, I guess I was a fan as a kid of shows. There were these like I think they were more local New York shows, like uh, David Susskind. Um, was one, and I think there was another guy named Alan Burke, something Burke. Anyway, they had, like, these discussion shows with a panel. It was like, usually on, like, Channel 9 in New York or something. It was kind of a dark set. And, <laughs> um, and David Susskind certainly was... I mean, he wasn't a funny guy. He wasn't a comedian, but he did, like... I remember he did this very famous show with, like... It was, like, theme shows, and one of them was, like... What's it like to be a Jewish son? He had on like Mel Brooks and David Steinberg and like three other Jews. <laughs> and, and of course, Mel Brooks was hysterical. And it was like yeah, a really funny, a very adult kind of show, you know. Um, and I, I think that's where I, I was trying to bring that into the uh, 90s. Um, so I, the first time I ever really did that was... In the summer of 1990, CBS offered eight different people one week each in the late night time slot. They must not have had a late night show then, or oh, I don't think they did. I think that was a big deal when Letterman. Yeah, that was like '93. Yeah. He came over, so they didn't. So I guess they were trying stuff out or whatever. But uh, you know, and you could do whatever you wanted in that week. And that's what I did. I did kind of a prototype of politically incorrect kind of theme shows with a with a panel, all mm -hmm. you know, all the people on at once. I think that's what I did. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just good timing that Comedy Central needed some programming at the moment that I was ready to do that show. I I did the show. I don't know how many times, but it was a lot and. You were the, actually the only person that right. would ever have me on any kind of <laughs> late night show. Yeah, you were good. It was fun. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I think. Yeah, we used people who were good it, and didn't who were bad. What a theory! It was an it was an interesting, uh, it, I, and I don't remember I don't remember any crazy crazy um, stories, but I do remember who was it? It was like uh, Nadine Strassen and. Oh yeah, and like Tucker Carlson, or like basically like two people that sure that you want to see in a cage together, right? And that was one of those ones. Yeah, there was a lot of that, which is one reason why I think it was harder to to get you know a lot of celebrities to do it because who wants to be like in the you know sitting there while these two sort of political pros go at each other? Then right. you kind of look like you know, an idiot at a cockfight or something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, four people every night for five nights a week, 46 weeks a year, that is a lot of guests. And were you ever, uh, was the, is there, is there ever a point, there must've been some point where you're like, Oh fuck. Well, I don't know if I have an answer. I mean, you know, cause people come in armed to the teeth with whatever their point is. Right. Yeah. I mean, those kind of people do. I mean, you know, those kind of people weren't always on, um, I mean, there was. I mean, it was. It was an interesting idea. How it lasted for nine years and six uh, on ABC, which was owned by Disney. I have no idea. Um, you know, people say to me about uh, to this day, they'll say, you know, "Gee, so sorry you got fired off ABC." <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm like, wow. You must really not have cable. Um, <laughs> and I always, you know, think, God, I'm not. I mean, I should have pulled the plug on it a long time before that. Maybe not a long time, but I think it had run its course. And there was no way it was ever going to, that format was ever going to um, be a more serious, well-considered show. It was always a little bit of a train wreck by design. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, just four different people from, you know, from the highbrow to the low mixed together. Yes, that was an interesting concept. It almost reminded me of that old saying about relationships. You know, opposites attract. They don't work. Right. Right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You know, my mom always it, it, says that. It was, a, it was an interesting concept. It attracted, but it didn't always 
work in that sense, you know. And then there were nights when, you know, I, I'm, I, even though there were four people there, none of them had very much to say, and I would, like, you know, pretty much do the whole show myself. It was mm-hmm. only, you know, a half-hour show with commercials, only 22 minutes, minus monologue. I mean, there, that's that's not much airtime for five people. That's true, but I, I, I remember, you know, and it's this this kind of this began to dissipate as I went on more often. But I but the first couple of times I went on, I, there was just that fear of like, I'm going to look like an idiot. Like I'm going to say something, and then someone's going to be like, "That's what you're saying is wrong," and here's 50 reasons why. And then I'd be like, "Yeah," but but it that never happened. But but I can understand why people would come on a little gun shy, you know, because they don't want to get fucking blasted in the face. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad it it ended. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm glad it happened, and I'm glad it ended. And I wish, I wish I'd had the guts to try to transition to the show I'm doing now a little sooner. But you know, you know, everything happens for the for a reason. I always say, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. No, maybe. I don't. That's bullshit. That is <laughs> things. Not everything happens for a reason. Don't believe that. Life is random and coincidental. Absolutely and random. I love that you used to do, on the Comedy Central version of the show, you would do the cleaning out the notebooks at the end of the show. Oh my god, which... that was the very first season. That's right, me and Bill Sheft would do cleaning out our notebooks. Oh god. Of just jokes that you never, yes, you never just... fully developed. <laughs> right, and stuff that never worked. Do <laughs> we just make each other laugh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I forgot that. That really was a, a, a I really loved doing that. And yeah. I, think, I think I actually heard you say something to the effect one time of, like, you threw out a joke, and then you were like... That's why I never developed that further. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was just, I think they were uh, not always, yeah, some of it was undeveloped, but I think some of it was just stuff that audiences never got, but we got. How you important? Know, very, how, how important is it to you to, like, if you have a bit that you were convinced, I don't give a fuck what the audience thinks, I know this is funny, do you keep doing it, or how much do you kind of pull back based on what the audience thinks? Uh, um, definitely, I mean, if they're not laughing, it's just no fun. You know, you have to pull back. I mean, that's just stupid to, like, insist that people find something funny that they don't, that only you do. But sometimes you will, you know, over time, find a way to make it funny. Mm-hmm. You know, you will. sometimes there's a flaw in the joke design. And sometimes it's just a concept that, you know, tickles you and doesn't tickle other people. And there, and that's a place for it. That's why. That's why we have notebooks to clean out. <laughs> I almost wonder sometimes if something is too funny to me, if it's just too inside my own head, and that's why no one else. It may get be. It. That's why no one it else. It may get absolutely it. be. Yeah. How do you how do you work out new stuff now? I mean, you obviously it's not like you can, yeah, you know, go to this workout room and just try a bunch of new stuff. Like, and obviously since everyone knows who you are, how do you do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can do that, but I don't know. I know this is <clears throat> sacrilege to say as a comedian, and I know lots of very experienced comedians would definitely argue with me but i've been doing this so long that i really honestly don't have to try it out i just kind of know when i'm writing it if it's going to work or not um so uh i guess i guess that's too bad for you comedians who are (laughs) (laughs) still working out i I just have a i mean I, i just say that because i've done it so many times in the last 10 years or so um, I just have a, you know, it's just repetition of doing this so many zillions of times. I just feel what they're going to laugh at. Of course, I'm always working. <clears throat> maybe it's also because I'm always working in this era mm-hmm. for only my fans. So there's not like people in the audience who aren't on my wavelength to begin with. Right, right, you right. Know, I, I kind of feel like I'm in a room full of friends. Right. You know, and when I'm on the road, I am. I mean, that's the only people who come to your show and are going to pay a hard ticket price are people who really like what you do. You don't have to, like, explain yourself. Right. That's one of the great things about about sticking with it this long. Um, and so, you know, I feel like we're already right there. So it's not that hard. Well, at what point did you kind of realize, you know, where you sort of looked out at the crowd and realized, like, oh, actually, all these people are here to see me. This isn't just, let's go out and see comedy oh, tonight. Well, that, that's very evident when that happens. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Bob Hope said once that there are three elements to comedy. Timing, which, of course, you have to be born with. You can't teach that. Mm-hmm. Um, material, which you gather over time, and recognition. And, 
recognition is the final and fun piece that puts gets put into place because when you when you get that <clears throat> you you don't have to explain yourself or or win them over i mean i certainly paid my dues you know all those years at the chuckle hut right you know winning them over cuz they don't know who you are you're just generic comedian you don't have fans you're just a guy at the comedy club and people went to the comedy club mm-hmm. and they may have seen Gallagher last week and now you're a big disappointment because you're not doing that. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you're all, you're you're performing to a cross section of people, uh, only a sliver of which might be your natural fans. Right. It's a really difficult way to do comedy. I mean, you know, you wouldn't think of doing music like that. People wouldn't just go to a club to see generic music right and then you know it's it's jazz and people who hate jazz have to sit through what the it. fuck is this shit well right. it's the music you know you... it's heavy metal and right you know most people don't want to see i mean comedy is as different as different as different genres of music i agree I, but most but, people most people just don't understand <clears throat> it that no, way but so it's a it's a horrible thing to have to go i always hated that was i absolutely resented <laughs> having to win people over and, right. and convince them I was good. And, you know, I did it when I had to, I guess, when something was on the line. I think I also back then had a bad attitude many nights. I certainly, when I was still in New York, you know, had my share of getting booed off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> really, some tough nights. I, I just did the Just for Last Festival in um, Toronto, Montreal. and then I remember doing it. And what was kind of interesting about it is, I mean, they literally bring in comics from all over the world. So you have, you have comics that you've never heard of, but in their own countries are like fucking rock stars. But here they are performing right. for you know a right. hundred people, and they don't know who that person is, and it kind of puts them back in that. Right. Ah, they, these people don't know who you are, and it was it was really. I mean, they did they did fine, but it was still it was an interesting challenge. We don't go past. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, one forty four. Okay. So it was just an interesting challenge to watch to watch that, but I always feel like, yeah, that's the ultimate goal is when people can actually are coming out to see you. That's when you know you've made it as a comic, and it's when it's fun. Yeah, that's that's when you know you've made it when you're enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning of real time, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I I think for the pilot episode, I think I did. St- stand up on the show for the, your pilot episode and there was more of a there was more um of like other comics there was an element right. to it because paul of tompkins was on the show and then you right. were gonna have comics and there then was that, that well changed. we did we had a yes the first very first season in 2003 um the format of the show was slightly different we didn't do the end that we do now which is me doing an editorial mm-hmm. um we had at the end of the show we did like a new sort of like I wanted to bring on and show because I thought this was HBO perfect place for it I wanted to show to the American public the comics who were doing the really hip stuff mm-hmm. like there was that um, Largo or, yeah Largo yeah yeah that place uh, Luna Park Luna was Park the other one yeah this was like where you went with your notebook almost you know it was like this isn't the shit that the regular crowd at right. the improv this is you know for only us hip people so I remember the first, very first show, Sarah Silverman was the comedian at the end. But we had, every week we had a, a comedy act like that. Bob mm-hmm. Odenkirk, you know, really the the funny, hip, um, I sound like Johnny Carton, the, the funny, funny <laughs> young man. Um, no, I know what you and mean, though. Tom, Paul Tompkins, right, who I'm still a big fan of, he did a little thing in the middle of the show. But the feedback from the audience was like, Bill, we, we watched this to watch you. <laughs> what right. are you bringing on a comic at the end? What do you have to? And they were right. It was it was not the right thing. So we ditched it after ten episodes. But that's true of almost any television show. You see the first shows, and they they have to find what they're doing wrong. Yeah. Well, the first two seasons of The Simpsons are not what The Simpsons ended up becoming. They oh, were like squiggly drawings. Right. It's almost yeah. every Family Guy. You know. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. Look different, and but I mean, even uh, if you look at pilots of. Uh, very often they fire someone who's in the pilot on a sitcom. Oh yeah, you know, I, I think every sitcom series I ever did, they fired someone who I we worked with the pilot. I did a show called Sarah, the first sitcom I ever did, 
and they fired Sarah. <laughs> they fired the titular character, and we when we reshot it in a day with Gina Davis. Now that's and that's 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 why that's one of the reasons why this business is you know I mean obviously we choose to be in it, but it takes forever before you actually start to feel like okay I feel like I'm secure because. You might not get the job, but then if you get it, they might not. You might get fired. Then they might not pick it up. Then they might replace you anyway after a season. Then you know, like you, you just you never ever there's, ever. No, there's no security. I always say, which is sort of ridiculous because I've been doing politically incorrect and real time with only a there's only a six month break between one going off and the other going on for eighteen years. Wow. <laughs> so. So that's that's as about as much security as you'll ever get in show business. But you know, it's not secure in the sense that I was given an eighteen-year contract in nineteen ninety-three. Right. It's secure in the sense that when you look back at it, every single year I had to sweat it out and wait till whoever was making the decision said, "Okay, we'll pick you up for another year again," because they want to keep you insecure. Right? They don't want to make you feel like, "Oh, well, you got it in the bag." <laughs> they want to make it so that you walk out of the office thinking. Whew, they picked us up. Yeah. Well, so your agent doesn't go in there and, like, fuck them up and get, you know, like... Right. Get any, they don't want you to have any power. Right. That's why you fucking deserve a screening room. That's right. <laughs> 18 That's years. Damn it. Um, how do you feel in terms of... Is it safe for you to go out? Because some of the groups that take offense at some of the stuff are a little on the fanatical side. So, is it... You can't ever worry about it. I mean, you know... Um... Yeah, there are people who hate you, but I tell you, the people who hate you almost never make themselves known. I mean, I know they're out there. I know I'm a polarizing figure, but it's just funny because if you, you know, if you went out with me wherever I go, um, even around America, not just here in L.A., um, oh, for a month, you'd, you'd never see anybody come up and go, you suck. I mean, that's happened in my whole life only a few times. The people who don't like you really just keep it to themselves. Right. Um, and the people who do like you come up to you. So it looks like everybody likes you. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, I, I just I just thought, you know, yeah. just, you know, after religious, I just thought like, oh my God, I hope some crazy fundamentalist, oh, you, know, absolutely. you know, doesn't... Oh. But I, I mean, I have a bodyguard and I have, you know, we, we definitely, he's really smart about how we travel and take precautions. and But, um, you know, I think they have bigger fish to fry. I think they have, I think they have people they hate more. Yeah, especially Obama. <laughs> Thank you, Obama, for taking the so much of the heat from the militia thinking people. Do you feel like I have this? I have this theory that because I feel. I mean, I, I'm sure every generation probably says like, "Oh, things are catastrophic. It's Armageddon. It's the end of the world." Right. I, I feel like because of the way the news portrays the world, because, you know, like news organizations have to get ratings, so they're going to put out yeah. shit up that's fear-mongering, and they're going to put out stuff that, like, they're going to show you the worst stuff because you'll watch it. And I, do you kind of feel like it kind of sort of creates this matrix of Armageddon that people feel like they watch the news and go, no, well, I, that's what the real world is like because it's all awful. I feel the opposite uh, because I think environmentally, I think that is what what's going on with the environment, I think, is unprecedented. Um I think we are approaching or perhaps have passed a tipping point mm-hmm. um, where we can't really get it back. And I think the media does the exact opposite. Uh, and the politicians, unfortunately, who, who understand this, the, the Obamas of the world, don't do a, a good enough job um, scaring people about this issue. Less people believe global warming is real, man-made, and happening than did five years ago. The climate bill, the the you know big one that they were going to pass in Congress, went down in flames this week because Obama never sold it, and the only thing people hear is from corporations and the liars they hire to put out bullshit on Fox News. That's what people hear about the environment. Is that that those are the people who are very vocal. Um, the deniers, the people who are saying it's a hoax and it's going to screw up the economy and all this bullshit. So, you know, I, I hope they're right, but we all know, because every fucking scientist in the world tells us, they're not right. Right. And I don't think that's... I don't think we've ever... We've had many cyclical kind of disasters that befall the human race and we all live through them. I don't know if we've ever had... 
the accumulation of greenhouse gases and the kind of pollution we have on so many fronts, species dying, the oceans more acidic, the glaciers melting, you know, all that plastic in the ocean. You know, I, I just don't know how much cumulatively the planet can take. Right. I know that sounds hippie-ish, but no, I no, think no. it's also kind of true, you know. Right. Facts, whatever they are. <laughs> I don't know. Who wants to get into... Oh, they probably thought the Black Death was pretty bad. Like, oh well, that's that's this isn't this isn't going well for but that humanity. That was just people. That was just people. You that know, was just people. This is something on a different scale. Well, you know, part of it I think has to do with the fact that um, people people don't necessarily fear things. I think they fear dread, and so I think that's why people are more afraid of things like terrorist attacks, plane crashes, because those are dreadful. And the same people will eat three double cheeseburgers in a and, day, and more people die of heart attacks, but they just don't think about it. Right. That. The other thing is is a slow moving disaster. Right. That they, you know, they have problems in their everyday lives, and it's just that you know, it's, look, it's sunny today. I don't see it doesn't seem to be hurting me right now. Right. You know, but the problem is that by the time it does get to the point where it's hurting you every time you go outside, then it's probably too <laughs> then it's probably too late to fix it. Did I have you flesh know? in my arm yeah, when right. I went when I left yeah. the house this morning? Yeah, that's it's just bone now. <laughs> yeah, by that time it probably is is too late. But you know, maybe we're wrong, and maybe it is uh, reversible. You know, we certainly have to hope. But uh, I'm kind of glad the- I'm not twenty. And having to be on the cleanup committee in 30 years. Right. And that's another problem is I think people think, oh, it's a problem for our grandkids. Not really. It sort of is happening now. Right. You know, I mean, uh, wildfires, for example, in California. Um, I remember watching the 60 Minutes report on them. I mean, they're like 10 times bigger than they were a generation ago, the wildfires, and more frequent. But they're just enormous. I mean, Mm -hmm. they just eat up giant hunks of the state. And... I remember Steve Cross talking. Steve Croft talking to the fire chief firefighter guy, and he said, "You know, we see people debating global warming." He said, "There's nobody here on my staff who debates it." <laughs> you know, it's just a very different scenario than we witnessed earlier in our careers. Yeah, you know, it's just because it's drier, it's hotter. Um, there are certain species that you know beetles and so forth that thrive more because it's they're longer summers so right. you know things that used to die out insects and so forth that eat the eat the forest and you know there's just a number of reasons why it's just um, gotten beyond our our ability to control it almost I mean, oh it's like a fucking jenga game like yeah the you wi- know <laughs> the wildfires out here are just really frightening i live in a, i live in a high fire zone like oh, yeah. up in the hills and every time you drive home there's this kind of smiling smoky the bear and they change the the fire danger that day and you know like almost all summer it always says like extreme in this yellow sign and i just kind of feel like oh yeah so i mean that <laughs> i mean that's burn. happening now that's but, you know, people are just adapters. You know, that's the human race. That's their nature. They just, no matter what shit befalls them, they adopt. You know, guys go to prison. They're not gay. All right, I'll suck cock. <laughs> you know, I just don't understand that mentality. They, but it's such people, a matter of, oh, well. Yeah, I'm here. I'm queer now. Okay, up, yeah, whatever. I'm going to shower. Um, and that's, you know, we'll, we'll like, they say in, in 50 years there'll be no fish. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably eat. You know, jellyfish and whatever, whatever roaches, whatever fucking was able to survive right. are decimating the ecosystem. We'll, you know, cover it in sugar and corn syrup and eat it. You know, I, I just assume we'll have synthetic food cubes by that point, yeah, where everything it, right. is just so like, oh, like, well, this tastes like a thing. Yeah, it's a shame we don't have fish anymore, but we don't. You know, my grandfather ate real fish. What sushi restaurants? <laughs> It'll be like a fucking thing in the past. Yeah. So, um, just kind of wrapping it up, how do you, uh, what's your writing process? Do you, do you actually sit down to write comedy or does it just sort of, do you just write it down as it comes to you? I'm, I'm more of a, as it comes to me, I'm a good, uh, <laughs> I'm good at being vigilant at, you know, remembering, I'm not that great at like purposely. I remember when I started, that was another thing we were told, you know, cause Bill Cosby told it to Jerry Seinfeld or something. And then we all heard, you know, you have to like. Sit down, first thing when you get up in the morning, I remember trying to do it, like first thing when your mind is sharp and you sit down with a blank yellow pad and you just write. You just start <laughs> writing and I tried that. I was like, ugh, what a shitty fucking <laughs> It feels awful. It's yeah. just like, 
It's like this Sisyphus this. sort of like yeah. pushing that. I guess it works for somebody. I don't know. I never thought Bill Cosby was funny, so I don't know why I was using his method. Um, <laughs> oh, you weren't charmed by I see, I loved himself. I loved the Bill Cosby storytelling never, thing. No, no. No. Never, you know. Who was your big who was your big influence? I would say my influences were Robert Klein, mm-hmm. uh, like as far as like that kind of stand up. He's got a new special coming out too. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, it's already out. Is it good? Um there are parts of it that are just great the old Klein, mm-hmm. you know. Um the, there's um who else was my George Carlin. Yeah. He was the other one like Klein. And then there was Johnny Carson, like more the old school, not really a guy who did a stand-up special, but he did a monologue every night. Right. So those were my... I love Dean Martin, too, you know, as far as like like the kind of a loose, laid-back, I haven't prepared a thing, and I'm still charming, and, <laughs> you know. Th- those were like the people who I really looked up to when I was a kid. Yeah. I was I I thought I went back, and I'm like, oh, my God, those Dean Martin roasts were so funny, I'm going to buy them. And then you watch them, and you're like... Oh my God, these are terrible! Like <laughs> that happens a lot. Didn't yeah. Really hold up. Oh yeah, but I, I remember actually writing down like a I had like a on like my white loose leaf notebook paper, like a hundred insults. I don't know what I was going to use them for, but I knew it was going to be a comedian, you know, that I got that I stole from watching the Dean Martin roast. He came up from nothing and brought it with him. Yes, yes. You know things like that. Yeah. She does the Dance of the Virgins from memory. Uh, <laughs> the most puzzling one to me, because it was like... He's what? a household name. Garbage is a household name. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, like, if you watch them, they're, like, they're horribly racist. Like, when you watch them, like, oh, whenever right. they'd have Red Fox on, one of Dean Martin's, because Red Fox had white hair... And Red Fox, or uh, Dean Martin said to Red Fox, <laughs> his granddaddy used to pick cotton, now he's got cotton on his head. <laughs> I was like, what does that even mean? I don't even know what that fucking means. I know what it means. Uh, I know, I guess, like, <laughs> Sammy's here, someone's got to clean up afterwards. Just like oh, stuff like that, wow. where you're like, oh my, you just feel yourself wow. implode inside. Wow. Um, That's wrong. Well, I know, uh, I know mm. you got to get going, and, uh, and I do want to say, I mean, I can cut this out if, if we're not supposed to mention this, but uh, it was... We hooked up again because we worked on a thing together, right? And it was super fun, and uh, and I'm glad we did because I always enjoyed coming on the show. Well, we hope uh, yes, we hope that pilot gets picked up. Yes, <laughs> yes, and then hopefully none of us will get replaced, and then it'll stay yes. on, and then we won't get replaced after the second season. Well, I'm not in it, so I can't be replaced. I'm the <laughs> producer this time. <laughs> That's a fun part. Yeah, cool and man. We have no uh, no desire to replace you. You were fantastic. Why? Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for allowing right. me to your screening room. Sure. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. The end. <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the Wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts